The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations, Breakthroughs, and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So, Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about peacemaking with terror groups. And we are so thrilled to our guest is coming to us all the way from Afghanistan and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, but I, I picked up this book, Talking to Groups That Use Terror, and it's by Nigel Quinley and A. Heather Coyne, who we are speaking with today. And this volume is really the eighth in, the, in a Peacemaker Toolkit series, and each handbook addresses a facet of the work of mediating violent conflicts including such topics as managing public information, addressing and enhancing ripeness, debriefing, mediation, and all sorts of peacemaking. And I just thought this was fabulous, and I just got this book, and I was so excited that we can actually bring her online from um, all the way from Afghanistan. So let me tell you about this incredible woman that we're going to be speaking to in a second, A. Heather Coyne serves as a police advisor for the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan. And she's working to empower communities and civil society to make police more accountable and responsible to their citizens with a special focus on access to justice for women and children. She advocated the use of community policing as a framework both for increased accountability and as culturally acceptable niche for women police to play a professional policing role. She started working with the United Nations in Afghanistan back in March of 2012, immediately after a two-year military tour with the NATO training mission, and she's worked there to strengthen the role of civil society in shaping the training and reform of the Afghanistan police and their army. And before she went to Afghanistan, she was a senior program officer and the Center for Mediation and Conflict Resolution of the United States Institute of Peace, where she was also responsible for the development of best practices and conflict management tools for mediation practitioners. She was previously the chief of party for the Institute's activities in Iraq and also served 15 months there with the Army, trying to help them to promote the growth of peace in their civil society there. And... Uh, another thing, even before that, A. Heather worked for four years at the White House Office of Management and Budget in the National Security Division, 
where she was responsible for the oversight of federal programs in combat terrorism and defense against weapons of mass destruction. In coordination with the National Security Council, she helped to develop the interagency review process for these programs. So I'm just so thrilled. She's done so many really wonderful things to bring peace to our world. And so thank you so much for joining us. I know it's nighttime there and morning here, so it's wonderful to have you, a Heather. Thanks, Mari. Thanks for the very nice introduction. It sounds a lot more fun the way you put it <laughs> than it felt at the time. <laughs> it's interesting how we can look back and go, wow, I did all that, right? <laughs> Tell me, how yeah. is it that you even got into this field? Oh, let's see. When I came out of grad school, I'd been studying strategic studies and conflict management, a joint degree, and I thought I was going to go work for an NGO to work on the connection between development and security, and then somehow ended up at the White House working on terrorism and found out about the Army Civil Affairs branch and ended up joining the Army at age 28. It was a very strange, (laughs) strange (laughs) process. So now I've been mixing, working with NGOs and international organizations and with the military. Wow. Now, you told me that you've been there just about three years living in Afghanistan. Tell me what that's like as a woman living there. I mean, we hear about all these women wearing burqas and how women are treated over there. You know, it just, you know, from my own little heart, it sounds a little scary. So tell me about that. It's a very tough and scary place for women, for Afghan women. For myself, it's not really, it, 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 it's not a, a, a daily problem because I'm an international, I have a special place to live, I have uh, colleagues who, who respect and, and include women. So it's, as an international visitor, I, I don't have that much trouble. Um, but you do interact with Afghan women every day and just are shocked and appalled at the kinds of challenges that are facing them. Wow. Now, when you go out, uh, are you on like a, like a campus area that you're protected, or, or are you living actually within the communities out there? How does that work? Both are living and working is inside a compound, okay. but we do a lot of movement around the city and around the country to interact with our counterparts in the Afghan police and the Afghan civil society. So we do get, we get out a lot, but of course, they, they take very good care of us to make sure that, that nothing bad will happen. Right. So when you do mingle with them in their communities, what do you wear? I wear just uh, normal clothes, but they cover all the curves, as we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no requirement to wear a burqa. And, of course, many Afghan women do not wear the burqa, especially in Kabul. Uh, a lot of the women are wearing loose headscarves and, you know, trousers and, and longer longer tunics. So it's not it's not forced on everybody, but I think in the rural areas there's a lot more pressure to wear it. Right. And so do do the women have to cover their face or they just wear a scarf on their head? Actually in Kabul I noticed that the women in headscarves and everybody does wear a headscarf, that's pretty mandatory. Right. But the headscarves fall off a lot. Oh, <laughs> and I they're see. always tugging them back up and it doesn't seem to be a big deal. So so it's it's a lot more uh, forgiving in the cities than it is in the rural mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you came to write this book, Talking to Groups That Use Terror? Well, while I was with USIP, we were putting together a series of handbooks, as you mentioned, that tried to give 
the mediators, mediation practitioners, who are very, very busy people, a clear, concise summary of the options and tools that they have when they go into a mediation effort, thinking about different aspects of it. And, of course, one of the challenges that came up again and again is how do mediation mediation practitioners, how do mediators deal with groups that use terror? Especially after 9-11, this is on everybody's front burner because the the sort of standard uh, refrain is that we don't negotiate with terrorists or more accurately, we don't make concessions to terrorists. Right. So what does that mean for a mediator who has to deal with conflicts that often involve people who, who use those kinds of tactics? Right, right. So... Um... When you when you wrote this, this was to teach mediators. Now, are these mediators coming from the National Institute of Peace, or where are they coming from? Are they Afghans? Are they Americans? I mean, what kind of training are they getting, and who are they? Because obviously, you're trying to help them and know what to talk, but where, where are they coming from? There's a huge range of people who get involved in mediation. Some of it is formal government officials from the U.S. or from other governments. A lot of it is track two mediation, the informal diplomacy and conflict resolution that's practiced by many civil society organizations. But some of it's also the the parties themselves who are negotiating directly with each other. I should say that in the handbook we we mix up mediation and negotiation a little bit because some of the the options for dealing with groups that use terror are similar both for mediation and negotiation. Right, and I would think facilitation if you're meeting with a whole uh, a, a community or a group, a exactly. whole group together. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, I became a mediator like 27 years ago, and when I when I went to college, I don't ever even remember any courses on conflict resolution, there weren't degrees like there are. And there are so many colleges now that have this. It's just amazing. It's kind of an evolution. I was one of the first mediators. And when my fellow attorneys knew that I was doing this and I was writing articles about it, they said, oh, are you meditating? You know, they, they just, <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I do that, too. Um, but I do that so I get calm before I mediate. But um, but yeah, you know, it was kind of a yes, a, right. A new thing then, and now it's it's wonderful that people are using this. I, I know a lot of my friends had talked about that dip, diplomats were not getting training in mediation. Has that really changed now? I, I would think very much, and yes, I have the same problem. While I was doing this series, the spell check was always trying to tell me it was mediate, meditation, not mediation. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now there's... Training programs both within governments and and, uh, the UN, I know, has a a mediation support unit that's dedicated to this kind of thing. But mainly what there is is this vast, vast uh, amount of publications and and theory and academic treatment of the subject that anybody who is interested can definitely learn a lot about it. The problem is that that kind of writing isn't always necessarily what a very busy practitioner needs to have to throw in his briefcase as he's getting on the plane to head off to one of these mediation efforts. Exactly. So what USIP was doing is, even though we knew there was this this huge amount of volume of literature on the subject, we wanted to distill it in a way that people could take it and run with it and, and use it very practically as opposed to uh, it, it doing a whole long degree on it. 
Yeah, I love it because you have it, the, the sections that you have, and it's not really huge. Like you're right, I could put it in my briefcase or whatever and take it out and read the whole thing on the airplane and, you know, mark it up and say, oh, this is a good idea. I want to remember this. Is So it is a great um, aspect of a toolkit. And, and uh, so I love that. So let's talk more about what you mean by practical guidance. And I know what you mean. I mean, I read a lot of these, um, you know, esoteric <laughs> white papers and, and books, but it's true. I mean, some of those people who are writing it are talking about theory and haven't really been in the trenches like you have or I have. I'm, I haven't been in the kind of trenches you've been in, but I've been in some, you know, some multi-party, uh, very challenging disputes, but nothing like what you're talking about. So, so let's talk about what you mean by practical guidance and, and give some examples for me. Sure. I remember at one point when I was sitting down with the a mediator who had been very involved in these activities, I kept asking him for the best practices. What are the, what are the tools? What are the options? And he wasn't being able to draw it out because he just does these things. You know, he doesn't have to think about uh, distilling lessons learned. He just goes out and makes things happen. Right. So it's at one point he was telling me a yeah. story yeah. about what he was doing, and he mentioned that uh, when Hamas and Israel were negotiating their de- their deal on prisoner exchanges back in 2009, they weren't prepared to sign an, a document together. So they ended up both signing a separate agreement with Egypt, which had mediated the negotiations. And I said, that's exactly what we're looking for. That's an option for a mediator that he might not have thought of right off the bat, but if he has that uh, benefit of somebody else's experience, that's what we're trying to capture in these books. It, so in this case, we wrote it up as a way that parties may be prepared to make an agreement, but they still have so much hostility to each other that they don't want to sign one with each other. Right. So we gave this option of having the mediator act as a signatory or to enlist a third party so that the parties are signing the agreement with the mediator, not with each other. Right. If they can trust the mediator. Now, in in these, um, let's say you have these uh, a terrorist group and you know another government group or something like that. Do you do you suggest like co mediators, someone from each side to be co mediating with these very maybe difficult, uh, hateful organizations or? communities? Okay, now we're going to have to rewrite the book to put that one in, <laughs> but, but that's a great idea because it, it, it usually there's a single mediator because coordinating those kinds of things is so difficult that you usually have one person who's sort of leading the charge. Right. However, we did mention in the manual that there are cases where you need to d- divide up the labor yeah. and uh, use everybody who is for their comparative strength, their comparative advantage, since some actors have more flexibility or more access than others. So I, I like that. I'm going to put that down for the, for the next edition. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, when I've mediated construction disputes, um, my husband is a general contractor. And so he trained, I trained him. And then he also took training with the American Arbitration Association and, and those kinds of things. It was really nice to have me as the attorney understanding all the attorneys involved, but him being like all the contractors involved. So that's what I was, it made me think of that to just have someone who really intricately understands each side. Um, so 
but you know, then you have to have a, a real good team and have people that get away from their ego so they can support each other in that process. So it's, it's another negotiation, and, right? And that is very hard, especially when you have all sorts of different interests and agendas from the, the actors involved in the mediation effort. Right. We're talking countries. So right, countries, right. of course, have a lot going on, and it's sometimes hard to compromise their own interests to make that team right. work. So we do, we, we touch on that just briefly, yeah. but I think it's, it bears a lot more exploration of how you can make a collaborative effort that really draws on, on the strengths of each stakeholder. Right. Because, you know, that would be, I would think that would build a lot of trust, and, and you and I know trust is like, they don't trust each other, they've got to trust somebody. Right? They have to trust the mediator. You're yeah, right. And and this one is so especially sensitive because we're talking about groups that most people say that they wouldn't talk to, they wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Right. So the mediators are already faced with the question, do you exclude terrorists or prescribed armed groups is the, uh, the other term we use to describe them? Do you exclude them from a peace process so that you're not rewarding violence and giving them legitimacy? Or should the mediator be the one to reach out and engage them so they can be persuaded to turn away from violence and towards a peaceful political process. Right. It seems to me, and and we've talked about this before in the show, that that terrorists, especially the leaders, um, are looking for power. You know, they feel impotent. They don't. You know, that the terrorist groups often feel that they're not respected. They have no dignity. That they, you know, that they want power. Right. And so I would think that having the power to be at the table would be um, something that it, that would be helpful if you could get them to be open and receptive to engage in that. I don't know if that... Yeah, uh, it's actually, that's one of the reasons that terrorists want to engage in these kinds of things, because it does give them some legitimacy if you're, if you're allowing them to be part of a political process like this. But at the same time, they are distrusting of the the government and the offers from official official sources so it's sometimes very hard to get them involved even if it would probably benefit them more than it would benefit the government right do some people think that the terrorists you know have to give up violence and agree to violence before they should be able to be allowed into this um, negotiation or mediation process that's probably the hardest question involved because we'd like to say you know, why should anyone sit down at the table with these people until they've agreed to give up violence? The thing to keep in mind is that moderation is a process. It's not a precondition. A mediator has to decide how much moderation to demand as a precondition and how much to nurture through the engagement process, creating moderation as a result of the negotiation. So the negotiation, of course, depends on some sort of sign of moderation. Starting a negotiation depends on that. But it can also promote the moderating of the terrorists through the process. True negotiations imply that there's a change in the terrorist attitude, attitude towards the means of struggle and maybe eventually even towards its end. So we try to use preconditions, one, because they really do offer reassurance to the, all, the, all the other parties to the conflict who have played by the rules that the terrorists have to change their behavior in return for a seat at the bargaining table. And the preconditions also gauge the readiness of the terrorists make concessions and test their ability to control their comrades. Mm. But 
at the same time, terrorists are not going to give away their power and leverage in advance of negotiations, especially right. if they think the use of violence is the only thing that's putting bringing their adversaries to the table. Right, right. So do what kinds of preconditions are we talking about? And then they, they do they say, which I would imagine from being a mediator myself, well, if we have preconditions, they should have preconditions, right? <laughs> Everybody should have preconditions before we come to the table. So what are some exactly? Of the- <laughs> that's actually one of that's one of the options that the, that we lay out in the handbook. That if you are going to impose condition preconditions, do it in a way that does maintain a, some a balance or some parity between all the parties who are participating. Right. For instance, um, in the Northern Ireland process, Senator George Mitchell was extremely successful at adroit, really, at creating preconditions that facilitated the process, testing the good faith of the of the parties, but they didn't demand the kinds of concessions that they're going to refuse right out, because it would just humiliate or emasculate the group. Right, right. So what he did is he, um, he set preconditions, uh, he, he formulated a set of principles that any party wanting to enter the negotiations would have to commit itself to. And he called those the principles of democracy and nonviolence, and they eventually became known as the Mitchell principles. Mm. Now, I remember even I, I remember when Arafat was considered, you know, such a terrorist that no one wanted in the United States, no one wanted anybody to um, negotiate with him. And then he was brought to the table, and there was a shift somewhat in his. Um, Demeanor. Do you remember all that, or that was before your time? <laughs> I just remember that. I do. I just, did on TV. But, yeah, but yeah. Sitting in my dad's lap, probably. Right. Right. No, right. It, it, I it, mean, it, I just remember that I was probably in college or something. But I just remember, or even after that. But I do remember that. I remember my parents saying, "Oh, why are they doing this? He's such a, you know, he's such a terrorist. Why are they doing that?" And then when he was brought to the table, because he was someone who was looked up to in his group, right? That when he was brought to the table and he was able to have that power and have that dignity, that I think there was a shift at that time. You know, that's right. And I think the the question is, and that our handbook tries to answer in part, is how what kind of techniques and approaches do you use that will encourage them down that path? They'll encourage these people who pretty much were just criminals and murderers at one point yeah. to, to, to buy into a political process. And how do we recognize the opportunities, decide who is a possibility, who's going to either a group or an individual that, is, that has the right characteristics for evolving, how do you recognize the opportunities? How do you exploit them effectively? And what are the approaches that that face a mediation or a negotiation with these groups? Yeah. Let me ask you uh, a question here. Be, because of the um, the view of women in, in the Middle East, which is not, you know, not as an equal like we have here, um, which even here, you know, we don't, we're not quite there. Um, are there women mediators? Are, do they have that? Is there that respect for them? And are there women at the table? How, how does that work in terms of gender? In terms of international mediators, there are a lot of women mediators who've who've uh, made sort of a uh, impression on the world through the UN, through Norway, through some of the countries that that are um, more likely to put them in those kinds of positions of power. I don't see a lot of mediation leaders 
in the Middle East being women, but there's certainly a, a very key role in the track to the informal diplomacy, in the community mobilization programs where women play an absolutely key role because they have links that the men don't necessarily have. However, if we're talking about groups that, that use terror, well, except for maybe the, the Kenya Mall example this week, mm-hmm. there aren't always a lot of women you know, heading these groups. And if you're trying to uh, deal with an interlocutor who can really deliver the rest of uh, his or her, her organization, it's mostly going to be, yeah. or it mostly has been men. Yeah, yeah. In your review of all the cases that of you know the engaging groups that used here, what are some of the most you know interesting or successful techniques that that you came across? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I remember one I was very very impressed with. In the research we were doing, I came across the work of Geneva Call, which is a humanitarian group that has been working on getting prescribed armed groups to sign what they call a deed of commitment for adherence to a total ban on anti-personnel mines. It's a long name. The deed allows, these are non-state actors, so they're not eligible to enter into the anti-personnel mine ban convention. But if, if by signing the deed, they undertake to observe the norms of that convention, even though they're not real signatories. Huh. So that creates an opportunity for a prescribed armed group or a terror group to make the kinds of commitments that are made by state actors and to show their ability to negotiate seriously and to enforce compliance by its followers. It's almost like it's a training exercise in negotiation, Hmm. and that makes it more likely that they'd be able to abide by an agreement and make governments more willing to negotiate with them. Hmm. So that's a, a really neat demonstration of why we should be encouraging a really broad range of peace building activities beyond the confines of just an official mediation effort. Right, right. Anything else that you found really helpful? How about over there in Afghanistan? I haven't been involved as much in mediation and and negotiations here, Um, but, of course, everything comes down to understanding that people want to have a role in decisions that affect their futures. So as long as you're opening space for people to be consulted, to provide input, whether it's on the police force or the army, which is what I'm working on now, or on, you know, the development infrastructure in their own community, people want to be involved in those decisions. Yeah. So what would you say is the most challenging issue? Or, you know, I know it's hard because there's lots of challenging issues. But what really, you know, what what are one of, yeah, what are some, what's one of the things that really stands out for you as really challenging in these negotiations with terrorists? I think one of the hardest things is the absolute, almost absolute inevitability of violence during Mm. the process, even when the process is going well. In fact, especially when the process is going well, because what we're talking about is uh, as soon as you get close to making an agreement, getting a settlement, the splinter groups or the hardliners that right. oppose it will resort to violence to disrupt the process. Right. So it's just it, just when you think you've got it, and then you're then you're uh, probably at the most dangerous stage. Now you have to you have to respond to that. You can't simply say, "Oh well, it, it, it's a minor bump in the road when those kinds of atrocities happen." 
But at the same time, you don't want to alienate or completely estrange or undermine your participants in the, the negotiators from that terror group. You don't know if they were responsible. You don't know if it was a splinter group that had broken off from them. And you, they may not have control over, the, uh, over all the, the factions. So it makes it incredibly difficult to, uh, to respond in a way that keeps you on track with the process, but says that this is not acceptable. Well, that is um, how we're going to end. Um, this is a wonderful book, Talking to Groups That Use Terror. I think this is something that people can use, whether you're dealing with terrorists or not. You still have to use some some dignity skills and all of mediation skills and negotiation skills. And we are so grateful to you for coming to us all the way from Afghanistan and taking your time. E. Heather Coyne, you're wonderful. And um, uh, we'll give your website here, which is USIP, United States Institute for Peace. That's what it stands for, USIP.org. And to find out more about this book, you can just go there and it's uh, slash resources slash peacemaker dash toolkit. So that's really wonderful. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And let us know if you'd like to come back on. I have so many more questions that I could ask you. It would just be fun. My pleasure. We have a whole series of these handbooks, so happy to talk about any of them. (laughs) Okay, that's terrific. Thank you so much, and good luck, and stay safe, and keep up the wonderful work, eh, Heather, okay? Thank you, Mari. Okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Uh, Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict and visit our website at conflicthealing.com where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, and write us about what's of concern to you about peacemaking in our world. Thank you. of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.